Abelard of castration fame led moody ex-monks with opinions to spill. But when all is done, who is really to blame? Let's find out more in the House of Revel. Welcome to House of Revels, the Theatre Through the Ages podcast. I'm Mingma. And I'm Olivia. And we are theatre makers taking you on a journey through the history of theatre from naught to now. Each week we explore a different theatre style, its context, origin and form, and then we score the theatre style in four separate categories. Finally, we decide whether it deserves a place in the House of Revels, the illustrious hall where only the best of British theatre lives. This week, we are discussing uh, Goliards. <laughs> All right, Liv, what on earth are Goliards? Oh my gosh, Mega. They are basically the bad boys of um, medieval England. I, I cannot wait. They are so cool. Um, basically, Goliards were a group of wandering scholars slash clergy who wrote satirical Latin poetry in the 11th, 12th and 13th centuries. They're badass and I'm ready. <laughs> Sounds really interesting. All right, so should we head straight into some context then for these bad boys? Context is where we discuss the current day events. As the form developed, what else was going on in history? What economic, social, political movements might affect performance? Okay, so we're looking at the 11th, 12th and 13th centuries. So I think a key context here is what life was like in medieval medieval Europe. So the first thing is that the feudal system that we talked about, this idea of kind of the king at the top, then all the nobles and the lords, and then the peasants at the very bottom, was pretty rigid. Um, You were pretty much born into a station and stayed there. So there wasn't so much class movement. Um, If you were a younger son, perhaps you might become a knight or join another military role or join crusading armies. So it's kind of a way of getting variety. So people were looking for ways to kind of get out of this kind of a very Mm. rigid structure i suppose the problem of being a um a second son is the whole thing of you will inherit nothing so you have to create something for yourself exactly and Mm. what do you do i mean i talk about that later and this pretty much the origins of of goliards but it's it's (laughs) so it's disenchanted bad boy spoiled brats basically that's exactly who they are and that's why i love them because it's such a recognizable trope that we can all identify with it's like moody (laughs) late adolescent early adulthood boys anyway um but no so the first thing is that life is pretty rigid there's not much social movement so that's Mm -hmm. the first context the other thing i'm going to briefly mention and i'm going to say briefly because obviously it's a huge topic are the crusades Mm. yeah i know we haven't really talked about them but they were happening yeah i've had this whole thing for a while of going i really want to do an episode on kind of like stories in the crusades but no no no, but we're based in britain so i can't but oh but mm, mm. well this episode actually that's a good point there's kind of not much super direct evidence that goliards were in britain were in the uk as we'll see there are some stories from england and there's presence of goliard texts in england but it's not super like I can say, okay, in Lancaster, there was this Goliad called such and such. Um, so we are talking a, kind of a bit more about wider Europe. But then remembering what we've said in previous episodes about how we're so kind of intermingled with France. And, you know, we've got, we're actually currently under the reign of Henry II, who grew up in France. And you've got Eleanor of Aquitaine. Like, we're not 
England a little. Yeah, and also remembering, of course, that um, trying to move a song, because we spend an awful lot of time under the reign of one very yeah. old medieval king, that his son, Richard the Lionheart, ruled for 10 years. Mm. Shit king, he spent 10 months of those 10 years in England. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I think we're fully justified in, in taking a style which almost certainly was performed in England, but wasn't entirely definitive mm. right now. Also, I think this is just such a great... This is so cool, so I just wanted to talk about them. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that goes together. Always the best Perfect. reasons. Anyway, back to the Crusades. So, the mm. Crusades were religious wars supported and directed by the Roman Catholic Church in an attempt to reclaim the Holy Land from the Islamic inhabitants. So, Jerusalem had been kind of open to Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And then I think, basically, it fell into more of an Islamic rule and it became harder for Christians and um, Jewish people to go there. So it was kind of... The Roman Catholic Church saw it as that the Muslims there had like taken Jerusalem from them. So the Crusades, mm. the first crusade was in 1096, um, were kind of a way of trying to get it back. And it became kind of a power struggle. Probably to put in a little point on that, that there's very little, let's do it for the Jews as well. Jews were not having a good time at this point <laughs> in any form. No, it's not exactly. It's it's solely the Christians doing it for the Christians. So in 1095, Pope Urban II promised the Knights of Europe forgiveness of their sins if they went on a crusade to win back Jerusalem for Christianity. So it was very much like, mm. oh, this is a way for a knight who's maybe done some dodgy things to go and win forgiveness. So the first crusade, as I said, was a year later in 1096. And the crusades lasted for centuries. Um, and they were a big deal. Um, and the last crusade was in 1396, so 300 years, basically. But basically, mm. the main thing that we need to know for this brief, not so brief context, is that they failed, and they failed hard. They basically... Saladin was an amazing route. They, they didn't do well, basically. Mm. Um, and they had some backlash. I think they contributed um, also to the fall of Constantinople. To attack back, basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't a great thing, to be honest. Nope. Um, Honestly, there's there's obviously much more information um, available. I don't want to go into it here because we could do a whole episode on the Crusades. But just to give a brief background. So the next context is university education. So the 11th, 12th and 13th centuries saw the founding of many European universities, or at least things that we would refer to as universities by today's standards. Mm-hmm. So the f- widely known first university was the University of Bologna, which was formed in 1088. It was in the Holy Roman Empire, now we know as Italy. That's when it was kind of first recognised, but teaching had actually started there much earlier. So you've got, you know, the 11th century, the first university. And and this kind of links back to what we were talking about in the previous episodes with, I mean, it's not directly Henry II, but this idea of lots of thought and lots of time to think and a time of peace mm. and a time of like reflection um, happening. 1150, the University of Paris was formed. Mm-hmm. So the University of Paris had four faculties, arts, medicine, theology and law, and students were divided into four nations. So you've got Normandy, England, France and Picardy. These nations were actually wider than suggested. So England came to be known as, and I'm going to get this pronunciation wrong, the Alemannian nation. And this included people from Germany. So it kind of the England nation changed into the English German nation and included students from Scandinavia and Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe. So even we had these four nations of like different types of students, they're actually quite a broad thing. What Were the nations language based then? More than anything? Um... 
I guess so, but I, I imagine that most of the communication would have been in Latin. <laughs> that good old fashioned. <laughs> that good old Unifier. fashioned catch-up. Well, I think most teaching would have been Latin, but mm. I very much get the idea of that's just a kind of an indication of like, okay, we have students from England in, I don't know, this section, students from Normandy in this section. Um, but I think that the point is it shows that actually, it's, even though it's the University of Paris, it's still getting students from all around the world. Yeah. Well, not all around the world, all around Western Europe. Um, <laughs> which is the world, of course. Which is the world. It's the centre of the world. The other kind of key thing is we have the University of Oxford. There have been some teaching in some form since um, 1096, which is also mm-hmm. the date of the First Crusade. Um, but there's no mm-hmm. clear date of foundation. Yeah. The University of Oxford rapidly developed from 1167 when Henry II banned English students from attending the University of Paris. I think there is like this whole thing about who was older, the University of Paris or the University of Oxford, and they keep yeah. on fighting about it and still... But basically, like, like the University of Oxford became popular because they stopped, Henry II stopped people from going from the University of Paris, which mm. I think is really interesting. And because it's like the whole thing of like how the University of Cambridge is formed because it's a group of like rebel... Um, there were executed scholars from the University of Oxford and that, then they went to form the University of Cambridge. So it's yeah. like how one thing, like one one going down forms another one. I think this is a time to diverge into some interesting historical context that perhaps we've not talked about, about Henry II. Mm. So the reason Henry II banned English students from attending the university in 1167 was basically he had an argument with Thomas Becket about it. And for some reason, yeah, he stopped them sending them there. Basically, here is the lowdown of Henry II and Thomas Becket. You know, Liv, I thought we would almost leave Eleanor of Aquitaine and Henry II without mentioning Thomas Becket. But no, here we are. We will bring them in. So... In 1162, Henry II appointed Thomas Becket the Archbishop of Canterbury. So Thomas was a big fan of the church and he was a big defender of the rights of clergymen. The church had great power and influence over the goings-on over medieval people's lives. So, for example, um, if a bishop committed a crime, he was tried in the church's court rather than the king's court. And in the church's court, the punishments were um, less severe. So there was this big tension between the church and king's court. Henry II was a big fan of justice and law. He restarted the jury system and he's commonly known as the father of common law. There's also the thing, isn't it, that um, he and Thomas Beckett were great mates when Thomas Beckett yeah. was the chancellor. And then he was like, oh, great, I'll just have my mate there and he'll help yeah. me reform it. And then he, and then he promoted him and then he suddenly went, I'm with the church now a lot. <laughs> and it was like, oh, no. And I think, yeah, I think Henry II was quite disappointed in thomas beckett for not kind of having his back type thing i think we all know that mate who you know who you think you can rely on forever and you then just promote them to help you and then suddenly they're <laughs> against you and you just don't know what what what, what, what i know what you mean but you get oh you have that mate and you get them into vegetarianism and then they become vegan and then they start like <laughs> lording it over you and you're like i was the one who st- it was my idea i got you there and now you've gone above and beyond <laughs> Who hurt you, Liv? Who hurt me? So many vegans. No, no vegans have hurt me. Um, I'm a big fan. Henry II, he ordered that only royal judges called justices could try criminal cases. 
And in, nine, in 1964, in 1164, Henry introduced the Constitutions of Clarendon, which were 16 rules designed to increase the king's influence over the bishops and the church courts. So if the church courts found a cleric guilty, they had to hand him over to the king's court to be punished properly. And Thomas Beckett was against this, and he was like, you're basically trying bishops twice, it's unfair. And he refused to sign Henry's Constitutions of Clarendon, and chaos ensued, basically. And so what happens is, at the Great Council held at Northampton in 1164, Beckett was found guilty of treason, so he fled to France. In 1170, the Pope threatened to excommunicate Henry II, so Henry let Beckett return to England. Beckett had won. Or had he? He hadn't. He he didn't win. Um, So then Beckett excommunicated three bishops who'd supported Henry. In rage, Henry is said to have shouted, Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Right. Four knights who heard this then tried to kind of please Henry, wrote a Canterbury and murdered Becket at the altar of the cathedral on the 29th of December in 1170. Becket was hugely popular and he was made a saint in 1173. The four knights that killed him were excommunicated from the church and basically all hell break loose. Um, Henry II tried to repent for this kind of murder and he walked barefoot to Canterbury Cathedral and allowed monks to whip him in 1174. Basically, it kind of really fractured the relationship between the church and um, the Kingdom of England and Henry II. Mm. It wasn't a great thing to have happened, to be honest. It kind of was a bit of a wedge. <laughs> it was a wedge with his with him having absolutely no power whatsoever yeah. afterwards. The public outri- outrage mm. that he couldn't touch the church again in his life. No. Um, I mean, so it's pretty um, pretty catastrophic. And, and basically, the point of this is there was a ban on English students going to the University of Paris. I'm going to quickly mention the last thing in context is uh, we've talked about them a lot, but we've got troubadours in southern France, troubadours in northern France, and what I think <laughs> I'm going to call mini singers. It's not mini singers. Mine singers, singers like in that. southern Germany. So these three types of poets were very similar in their kind of style and traditions of poetry in the same way that they they composed and sang songs and um, accompanied themselves with music on a simple instrument. They wandered from place to place rather than being attached to a particular court. Songs were kind of respectful and poetic and beautiful and loving. And we talked about the kind of lays of courtly love and stuff, didn't we? Mm. We've got this sort of very noble poet who's kind of respected. And, and like this, this is basically the status quo of poetry. To, to give an idea of how poets fit into the mm. society and into culture, uh, a great story which did the rounds was that when Richard the Lionheart was captured uh, by, uh, I think it was the Austrian king, I can't remember, and no one quite knew where he was, but there was a loyal bard who wandered around and uh, would sing under different windows of castles, uh, a a duet that only he and the king knew. And uh, so he was going round and round trying to find, and then at a certain point he sang it, and then a voice kind of came down and and finished the harmony. And so he had found Richard in this castle and he could go off and tell everyone where he was. Oh, um, that's a lovely story. Aww. Aww. Talk about the propaganda machine around Richard the Lionheart, mm. but you know, that's a subject for a different day. But that's how much poets and the idea of poetry was into the psyche, I think, is my point. So if I just quickly sum all of that up, context of all of this is uh, the feudal system Mm -hmm. meant that most class structures are pretty rigid and that second sons quite often didn't have 
anywhere to go. Uh, they didn't have much place in society and so would have to forge their own futures in a way. And a lot of that could go into the Crusades, which are happening very much during this period, uh, this period being between kind of the 11th to the 13th centuries. And also, again, as you we were saying, the wandering scholars tradition right at this point of the 1150s um, and uh, in the 12th century, uh, there was a blossoming of education. And so many of the great universities of Europe were founded at this point. Also, a uh, fun sidebar of satirical bad boys in uh, <laughs> in the church. We have Thomas Becker and all of that drama going on in England. Origins. This is the section where we discuss the origins of the theatre style. We trace its beginnings and what influenced its development. Uh, we can also look at what's happening in other countries and all of that shizzle. So, live origins how did these bad boys begin so we've talked about this idea of kind of the second sons having not really much to do um and in very much in england we had this um primogeniture where the eldest son inherited the title and the estate um leaving the second and younger sons to kind of go and find ways to support themselves but this wasn't the case throughout europe was it mingma no. Ooh. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just being called on. Uh, no, so in France and in other areas, land is meant to be divided equally amongst everyone. Mm. And so this obviously caused a bit of a friction about what do you do if you're in charge of both? Yeah. Um, and this kind of thing. But um, either way, there are a lot of second sons at a loose end quite often. Yeah. And, and kind of what do they do? What do they do? They go to university. They go to one of these, you know, the University of Paris where these this, these new ideas are being discussed. They also got sent to monasteries, which I think is the shortest straw, to be honest. <laughs> basically, they often were sent to these places and they weren't really feeling it. Like they didn't particularly want to go. They had low motivation. I mean, I think we can all relate to being at university and not really feeling it. So, oh, oh, oh guess oh. we didn't do much of her biology degree. <laughs> um, too busy performing. Particularly those people who were sent to monasteries. If they weren't really feeling it, as I say, they weren't really vibing, it's quite tough because they've got no motivation, they're isolated from the outside world, and there's kind of strict religious disciplines. It's not really a good mix. And so what happened was a lot mm. of young people, I say young people, they could have been older, were kind of refugees from monasteries, and also people were expelled from monasteries. Do we know what, what, what you have to do to get expelled from monasteries? I think you basically have to be... Just rude. How much sex on the altar has to happen before you get? I I imagine. I imagine, probably. Goliards are they're kind of as I say like they're bad boys. They're like the rebels. Like they're all having sex and drinking. So basically, what we've got are these kind of expelled students and refugees from monasteries who are all kind of wandering. Uh, I think we can definitely recognise what these type of people look like. I mean, we've all know people who've been expelled from school. And among them, among these kind of wandering people were people who perhaps knew a bit of Latin and knew a bit about the kind of religious text. Plus, mm. we've also got um, a lot of teachers. Um, so teachers would migrate from one location to another with their students following them. So there were already a lot of kind of scholars in transit. So like going into taverns and inns and mingling and drinking and telling stories. So we had basically what's known as the wandering scholars, the, these kind of group of people who were all quite mm. different, but all sort of wandering around, roaming around, chatting. And that's kind of basically how we get started with this Goliard idea. They wrote poems about love and poems satirising the church. And basically, eventually the Goliard movement was sort of institutionalised and they formed a fictitious mm. order 
Ordovagorum with its own <laughs> I know, this is this is where it gets good, with its own yeah. saint. Hence the term Goliard was applied to the wandering scholar slash poet slash musician slash failed clergy member slash this like blub of person who's sort of around So Vagorum Gorum Goliard, is that how it happens or is it their kind of saint of the Order Vagorum is called Saint Goliath? And there's several theories about how Goliard might, the time, the name might start. So one of them is it comes from, it may come from the Latin word gula, meaning gluttony. So mm-hmm. it's said to have originated, as I said, from this Bishop Goliath. And then there's a really interesting guy around this time called Peter Abelard. Abelard. Abelard, right, okay. That's what happens when you just read things and you don't listen to things. Abelard and Eloise, right? Yeah, Abelard and Eloise. A letter between St. Bernard and Innocent II, in which he referred to Peter... Um, Pierre. Pierre. Well, we called Peter, but Pierre Abelard as Goliath, thus creating this connection between Goliath and the students of Abelard. So that's possibly one other origin for it. And it could also come from the word galliard, which means gay fellow. I always love the galliard as a word. Galliard. It really it has joy in it, in a way of, um, yeah. you know... It's like, um, yay! You know, there's some kind of onomatopoeic words where you, you totally understand what a galliard is. Yeah. It's, it's a da- it en- ends up meaning a dance as well later on. Galliarding about... Oh, I just yeah. punched The galliard. Yeah. The I'm going to quickly explain who Abelard is because he is so cool. In my head, okay, so this isn't probably technical. He's kind of like the the kind of boss of the Goliards movement because he's mm. quite quite a rebel. So he was a philosopher from Brittany and he was... Basically a big celebrity. He was really popular. He's known for his uh, love affair with Eloise, who was one of his students at Notre Dame where he taught. He's a really big philosopher. Um, Mm -hmm. And he's known as like one of the greatest minds of the 12th century. And um, Eloise as well is pretty badass. She's known as a really intelligent woman. She knew Latin and Greek and Hebrew. And they fell in love. She became pregnant. They married in secret. Peter was worried about her safety, sent her to a nunnery. Eloise's uncle thought that this meant he was getting rid of her. So he had Peter castrated. Oh. Yeah. Peter then castrated Peter, went to a monastery. He then told Eloise to become a full nun because she was kind of pretending to be a nun. So she also joined a nunnery. But they have seven of their love letters remain. And Peter is like the father of celebrity, self-reflective autobiographies. He wrote this book called The Letter of My Calamities, which is just oh God, such a good title for her. Like, you know, you know what's happening. Um, That's such a good title, but, I will admit. But basically, they're well known for their kind of... We actually know a lot about Peter because of this book and also his like love affair. I mean, that's it's pretty scandalous. Like, getting pregnant outside of marriage, marrying someone, like sending her to a nunnery, being castrated by her uncle, joining a monastery yourself. It's actually like the uncle created his own fear by the fact that you know, if he hadn't castrated him, then he, she wouldn't have been at the nunnery. So yeah, it's like, okay, they had sex before marriage and got pregnant, but then they were married with a child. Like, it wasn't that bad. It was just... No. Yeah. Well, there is a whole thing, oh, again, I'll put a sidebar mm. in here about sex before marriage. Basically, everyone basically carried on like we did mm. in terms of marriage and sex and all the kind of rest of it. It was just that if the woman got pregnant and she didn't get rid of it in any kind of form, mm. then the man was on a bound to marry her. And so we hear all of the disasters when the men then refuse it. But in general, it was such a well-known thing that if that woman does get pregnant and they haven't, yeah. you know, and they haven't taken proper precaution beforehand. It's quite funny looking at church records of a marriage taking place and like three weeks later the baby's born. Yeah. But that's a legitimate marriage and it doesn't matter because it's already... A, it's already yeah. there. Yeah. 
I mean, also, there, there was a quite a lot of female protection in that you could have common law marriages. I think that's what it's mm. called, which is effectively if the man says he'll marry you, that counts as a marriage. It's really interesting, again, about female emancipation, about all this kind of stuff. It's pretty, once you look pretty at bad, it. I think. But um... So that's one possible like source of, because of this reference between St. Benedict and the Pope, that he was like Goliath. But mm. there's also this idea that Goliath represents Satan, with like David being good and Christ, and then Goliath is the enemy, mm. and he's like, you know, Satan. Um, but the Goliard yeah. term kind of outlived the original meaning, and it was passed over into the French and English literature of the 14th century, kind of meaning, generally meaning jongleur or wandering minstrel. Okay, so does it does Goliard as a term continue into the 14th century, and then it just means a type of wind yeah. minstrel? Yeah, so I think uh, in one of Chaucer's works, he uses the term Goliard, but he doesn't use it to kind of mean this rebel poem. He uses it to more mean wandering minstrel or jongleur. Again, this kind of wonderful evolution of words. Evolution of words, exactly. But yeah. what we're looking at here is very much these um, rebel, rebel um, beginning stage. bad boys. Yeah, The origin. The origin. Brilliant. So we've got some second sons who are sent off and join the church and join monasteries, but then don't quite realise they want to be there and it all gets a bit confusing. And as this is a time it's very warm and everyone is travelling a lot and there's a lot of free flow of education and thoughts literally on the roads, mm-hmm. um, all of these boys end up on the road, probably um, mostly uh, wandering around and uh, exchanging ideas is and beginning to create their own style of poetry and words yeah um and their leader in some form is abelard uh of castration fame <laughs> of castration fame <laughs> that's a great way to sum up the word itself later on becomes to me much more of just minstrel but right now mm. it actually refers to a term of people and pro- might come from galliard might come from goliath might come from gluttony <laughs> yes fab we are on to the form. So, Liv, what exactly are the main features of this Goliard style of poetry? Okay, so where Troubadours wrote about and sang about kind of chivalrous courtly love, as we talked about in episode eight of House of mm. Rebels, I suggest you go back mm. and listen to that episode, Goliards were much more explicit. So they had kind of more of a realistic expectation of like short-term love. Um, and they were all about sex and drinking and gambling and... Um, you know, they protested about the contradictions within the church. So they talked about the failed crusades and the financial abuses. Um, and they basically were very disillusioned with everything. And they also talked about drinking and riotous life. And they were generally chaotic. The Goliards used sacred sources. So they used texts from the Roman Catholic Mass and Latin hymns. Um, and pretty much most of their poetry is directed against the church. It's very much a protest movement. Um mm-hmm. Is a lot of angry, angry young men. So there's two main sources of Goliardic poetry. So we have the Cambridge Songs um, and the Carmina Burana. So, oh, so again, if it's the Cambridge Songs, then there absolutely would have been some impact in England. Well, perhaps. So the Cambridge Songs are um, compiled in the St. Augustine's Abbey in Canterbury. So Mm -hmm. I'll kind of explain a little bit about how we think they got there. But basically, it's a collection of 83 songs. Um, They're currently in the Cambridge University Library. They're mostly in Latin, um, but there are some vernacular sections and they're kind of poems again about love and, you know, the religious forms and narratives. And there's mm. loads of different um, verse structures. So they've got 15 syllable lines and then we've got Ambrosians, Adonis, Sapphics, Anapests. But basically, mm-hmm. there's no sort of definitive structure for a Goliardic poem. It's lots mm-hmm. of, it's kind of like a free fall. Yeah. So 
the Cambridge songs, there's some poems that are German. There's a lot of praise poetry for German kings and emperors, and it mentions German place names. There's also contain expert, expert? excerpts from classical Latin poetry of the Golden Age, the Silver Age, and the Late Antiquity. So there's um, a lament for Conrad II, which places the date of collection assembly in the mid-11th century. So we know it's it's kind of before the Crusades, basically. 1150s, baby! 11 fi- well, 1050s, Again. pretty much. Oh, okay. But not, not, oh, no, right, no, okay. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. It's not great. It's, it's not, it's not our 1150s time. Some songs are thought to have originated in Italy and France, but because of the high number of German songs, it's thought to have come um, from Germany to England. So, mm-hmm. what is the Cambridge? <laughs> There's a lot of talk about what are the Cambridge songs. Um, it was originally thought that it was a songbook of a Goliard in England, but this is not mm-hmm. thought to be the case anymore. And there's a the- the-, the new theory is that um, it was brought back to England by the Bishop Eldred of Worcester, who was on a diplomatic mission to Germany. So there was talk of it might have been a teaching manual potentially for Goliards mm-hmm. or it was a songbook of a Goliard but we now think it's more sort of just like a record so that's why I can't okay. say for sure that there were definitely Goliards in, 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 England. in England but there was a presence of the poetry and there still must have been interest of some sort well, this, the fact that yeah. he brought it back proves that there was some knowledge of it in England and also the fact that they preserved it there's always this yeah. thing about you know and don't forget as well that it wasn't a ridiculous thing to go from Germany to England. Like, English people, English scholars were going to the University of Paris. Mm. It was quite regular. It wasn't as cut off from each other. It wasn't like a big It was like a big deal to go to France. Remember that, actually, Saxons were German-speaking tribes who came over in the 6th yeah. century, so there is a whole thing there. Yeah, 50% of our... People are doing hand gestures and no one can see them. Anyway. Over there, <laughs> if we take the sentence... Uh, it is very romantic. In German, that is, es ist sehr romantisch. If I said to you, es ist sehr romantisch, you'd probably go, okay. Very good is sehr gut in German. Sehr gut. Yeah. Oh my God is oh my God. Yeah. Oh mein Gott. <laughs> oh mein Gott. <laughs> yeah. My favourite one is ich muss ins Krankenhaus, which means I need to go to the hospital. <laughs> I must go to the Krankenhaus. H-A-U-S. Oh. House is... Yeah, Welcome house. to the house. To the house of Holbein. Yeah. <laughs> so we move on to the second source of um, Goliardic poetry, which is the Carmina Burana. So it's the largest and most famous collection of Goliardic verse. It was written in the late 13th century in Bavaria, so about 150 years, 100 years after the Cambridge songs. Um, it's 254 poems and dramatic texts, mostly from the 11th and 12th century, though some are from the 13th. And there's also a mixture of Latin and German or French vernacular. They also feature eight illustrations. So at the end of groups of songs of similar kind of content, there are pictures inserted too. So most notably is the Wheel of Fortune. So this is quite a recurring theme. So the Wheel of Fortune is this wheel. And I think it's like, I am king, I have been king. I am, like, on the ground, and I will be king. It's this idea of... That what comes up must come down. Exactly. So there's four main themes in the work of the Carmina Burana. So we've got 55 songs of morals and mockery, Mm -hmm. uh, 131 love songs, 40 spiritual... 40 spiritual drinking? 40 drinking and gaming songs, and two spiritual theatre pieces. Mm -hmm. So the other frequently recurring themes include critiques of 
um, simony, which is like the buying and selling of ecclesiastical offices or pardons and greed in the it church. It might be so, simony, I don't know. Maybe it is simony. It's simony or simony. Mm. Maybe simony. But basically just corruption in the church. Uh, lamentations, so kind of about death and human fate. Fifth, human fate. So death and human fate. Uh, celebration of the return of spring. Poems about shepherdesses and knights slash students slash clergymen and love as a military service. You so, can't be a shepherdess and a knight. Why don't you just, let's, let's recreate it as students and clergy. <laughs> students and clergy. Shepherdesses and clergy. Shepherdesses and students. <laughs> Very much like a seduction of a shepherdess. They weren't, they weren't like super love, they weren't super love songs. But would you have love as a military theme, which is kind of taken from Ovid's elegiac love poems which we also mentioned in vikings so that's coming up again <laughs> and we also have songs condemning those who aren't good at giving money so presumably these wandering scholars they were poor they were trying to make their living by singing these songs in places mm. so much of the poem the poetry is anonymous mm-hmm. um, but there are some known authors such as hugh prima of orleans pierre de blois blois Gautier de Chatelon and Philippe the Chancellor. Um, <laughs> Philippe the Chancellor. Philippe the Chancellor. <laughs> Philippe. <laughs> Philippe. 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 Um, so basically, many of these poets outgrew their student ways. So there's a, there's an argument that the kind of um, Goliards are very much, oh, we're young and we've got like these dreams and sort of like, you know, young hippie type-esque. Like it's very much, oh, it's a youth movement. But we also have the arch poet who basically wrote 10 surviving poems and he preached the Goliardic ways until his death. Do we know who arch poet was or is it just like the arch poet we bring you? The arch poet. Well, he we can recognise, uh, we know a little bit about him from the poems he wrote. So he was in the service of Reynold of Dassel, the arch chancellor of Frederick Bar- Barbarossa and the archbishop of Cologne. Um, and we know he was well-educated and a princely patron, and he employed his talents to secure favours for himself as friends. So that's the mm-hmm. archbishop. Archbishop? Archpoet? Archpoet. Yeah, not archbishop. He's the archpoet. Um, which I think is a pretty... Like, if you said, I am the archpoet, it's pretty ominous. It is pretty, yeah. Archangel archpoet. It's, it's all up there. Pretty badass. All right, so uh, roughly we have two main texts surviving of um, Goliardic poetry. One in Cambridge and one in Munich now. Mm-hmm. And the, the biggest one is uh, the Carmina Burana, which is the one in Munich. And actually, there's a beginning thing that we're getting out of moody teenage boys. There is actually an elevation which goes on in terms of the poetry. Yeah, yeah exactly. All right, so uh, now we have all of that. Uh, so do we have an example Goliardic poem of some sort? You know we do, Mingma. You know Ooh. we have one. Ooh, okay. um, I'm choosing this poem not because I think it's particularly... I mean, I know we were expecting love and drinking and scandal um, in these poems, but I've chosen perhaps the most famous Goliardic poem, uh, which I'm going to read the first verse in Latin and then I'm going to read the rest of it in English and translate it. But I just want to give a sense of the Latin. It is going to be butchered uh, because I I struggle with pronunciation. So, excuse me. It's called O Fortuna, which does make me think of Fortuna. Um, <laughs> Fortuna major. But it is about the goddess Fortuna. Um, and this goes back to what we're saying about the Wheel of Fortune. Here we go. O Fortuna, the lute luna, 
Statue variabilis, semper cresis, aut decresis, vita distabilis, nuc obdurat et tuc curat, ludu mentis asiem, egastatum potestatum, dissolvit ut glacium. That basically translates to, O oh, fortune, like the moon, you are changeable, ever waxing, ever waning. Hateful life, first oppresses and then soothes, playing with mental clarity, mm. poverty and power. It melts them like ice. That's what that is. Ooh. And then the rest of the poem translated is, Fate, monstrous and empty, you whirling wheel, you are malevolent, being is vain and always fades to nothing. Shadowed and veiled, you plague me too. Now through the game, I bring my bear back to your villainy. Fate is against me in health and virtue, driven on and weighted down, always enslaved. So at this hour, without delay, pluck the vibrating strings, since fate strikes down the strong, everyone weep with me. Oh, they are such moody teenagers. Bloody hell. It's such moody teenagers. It's not exactly a, an uplifting song, but again, it goes back to this idea of lamenting against like the the for- wheel of fortune how you know <laughs> why it's monstrous and empty my fate yeah. you know well-being is vain everything is against me i'm yeah. quoting here yeah. oh. <laughs> monstrous and empty i like fate yes monstrous and empty anyway that yeah. is um oh fortuna the example poem it's interesting actually looking at it as well yeah. like all of the lines are very short yes you know, we've been talking about very long, you know, so it's all kind of been eight syllable lines, whereas this is almost like Viking poetry that it's... Yeah, and if you look at it, there is some rhyming, like, Old Fortuna, Volute Luna, Statue Variabilis, Semper Cressis, Out Decressis. Pretty, it's pretty punchy, I think. Now we move on to the scoring. Uh, we score every theatre style in four separate categories. Sleight of Hand, Scandal, Ripple or Riot, and Legacy. We each give a score out of 10 for each category, leading to a max total out of 80. Finally, we decide whether it deserves a place in the esteemed, the illustrious House of Revels, the great and noble hall where only the best of British theatre lives. So, firstly, sleight of hand. Here we explore the stagecraft in this theatre style, the props, the tricks and the trap doors. I'm not going to lie to you, Mingma. We've got music. We have music because we always have music. Uh, <laughs> so about one quarter of the poems in the Carmina Burana are accompanied in the manuscript by music. Um, and I thought this was actually an interesting thing. So this thing using a heightened staffless names, names. You'll know this because you know music. Nooms is a way of notating and writing down your music before uh, we had staves, before we had this five line stave notation. So we actually have written down music for the well, first time. We have written down music, but also they're staffless. Um, and basically, this means that they kind of only indicate whether the next note is higher or lower than the previous note. So we don't okay. know what the... It's only useful for people who already know the melody. So it's kind of like going up or down. You can mm. compare these staffless neumes to staffed neumes in other contemporary manuscripts. So we kind of know how they sound. So that's the music, so there's that. And then I think this is a pretty big thing. They're basically, they're twisting the words of the church. Their whole thing is they're basing mm. it on the texts of the Roman Catholic Church. And I think that deserves some that deserves some trickery. I mean, they're using Roman and Greek gods and they're kind of playing with things that people already know about. And So they're twisting kind of faith and doctrine into their own way of doing things as well. Yeah, which I think is pretty tricky. And 
the other thing is I think they've got world building. I mean, they made up a fictional bishop, St. Goliath, and a whole imagined order. <laughs> so you could kind of argue you've got this idea of like creating a world, world building. Yeah, that's, okay. that's where I'm going. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I won't lie, it's not that much for a uh, sleight of hand. Um, I suppose we could also, I suppose, put the fact that in most yeah. of their satires, it's a is yeah. a type of sleight of hand, which is similar to the twisting the words of the church. But um... I think also, I think we have to say that, like, because it's a completely new form to what we've experienced. Oh, sorry. Mm. I think three. Yeah, I was going to say three. I'm going to say three, and mm. I'm going to say three point five because I do think the world building is cool, and they did have a fictional bishop. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fair enough. Okay. So that is six and a half for Sleight of Hand. Scandal. Was there any juicy gossip surrounding the style on stage or off? I mean, you know there will be. It's li- <laughs> they're literally, they're openly talking about sex um, and mocking the church. Like, that is, I think, possibly the most scandalous we've, got, we've had so far in terms of, you know, talking about sex, mocking the church, basically like the worst thing you could do do we know how much of sex it's them being for want of a better word lewd in terms of like we're actively describing the act of sex or are they talking about the fact that you're allowed to kiss a woman um or... well okay so for example they how much karma sutra territory are we going into okay so <laughs> get ready bigger so in the Carmi- carmina burana they kind of um took ovid's erotic elegies and mm-hmm. reproduced them and exaggerated them so for example there's um in one of the poems, they make use of the first-person narrative to describe a ten-hour love act with the <laughs> goddess of love herself, Venus. Um, and there's another one which is about like a lad and a sweet lady, and if they want to like go and make out in a shed, then they're welcome to do it. Like we all know what's happening. I don't think they're going. They, we made sex for ten. We made sex. We we made sex. <laughs> we made sex. We created it. I think it's pretty raunchy, Mingma. And also, as we mentioned, I know I keep sort of harking on about this point, the satires were meant to mock the church. So, for mm. example, for example, at St. Remy, the Goliaths went to mass in procession, each trailing a herring on a, string, on a string along the ground, the game being to step on the herring in front and keep your own herring from being trod on. I think this is really, <laughs> I think this is really interesting because we, we're talking obviously about the poetry, but it is also a protest movement. Like, they weren't just writing quietly. They were also going out and being um, kind of rebellious. Protesty boys. Yeah, they were being kind of... Mopey, rebellious boys. Mopey, rebellious boys. Uh, so they've got the celebration of the ass in which he dressed in a silly costume and was led to the chancel rail where the cantor chanted a song of praise. When he paused, the audience would, would respond, he whore, sir, ass, he whore. Um, <laughs> like, the University of Paris complained, priests and clerks dance in the choir dressed as women. They sing wanton songs. They eat black pudding at the altar itself while the celebrant is singing mass. is saying mass. They play dice on the altar. They sense with stinking smoke from the soles of old shoes. They run and leap throughout the church without a blush of their own shame. Finally, they drive about the town and its theatres in shabby carriages and carts and rouse the laughter of their fellows and the bystanders in infamous performances with indecent gestures and scurrilous and unchaste words. Wow. I mean, 
Wow. Yes, yes, I fully see the scandal. I, th- I think we have some legitimate proper scandal going on I think on here. this is all scandalous. Like, it's yeah. just a list of things. And yeah. also, I think from this text, you can also say, you know, they roused the laughter of their fellows and the bystanders and in infamous performances. Like, it wasn't just them. They were also getting other people, you know, bystanders. I think they were kind of affecting people around them. Mm. I like to think of them as, um, you know, posh, you know, the riot club. Yeah. thing of like going around like this is like the original riot club um <laughs> oh, i love that uh for people not listening uh for people listening posh is a play by live laura wade by laura wade yes um yeah i fully see it the other thing to mention which i just noticed in this is we spoke in the anglo-saxon liturgical drama mm. section and a couple of others i'm sure whenever we do religious it comes up yeah. that the nave is an everyday space so the, so the churches were very much your community place you could have your markets in there uh so there was a very much a different thing of the nave being your community space and then the end the choir and the altar area is your sacred space and so it's not scandalous to be in in the nave doing stuff you know because that's just what normally happened but the fact that they are in the choir dressed as women and singing wanton songs and eating black pudding on the altar itself that is incredibly scandalous yeah so there is this they have crossed the boundary in other words they've gone too far yeah yeah (laughs) yeah uh so i think actually this this is what i mean i think they're pretty scandalous Mm. um yeah i think eight I was going to say eight. I, I was going to say eight as well. And I can't think of a, a theatre style we've had which is more scandalous. Mm. What I think we're missing is because there's not, there's not. I can say, okay, there's one Goliard who is did these scandalous things. You know, no. It's just a general movement of chaos, basically. Uh, all right, onwards. So we are now on to ripple or riot. Here we judge whether this style caused a ripple or a riot. How socially controversial was its existence and content? Did it spark wider conversations? So I think we know where on the ripple to riot this is landing, yeah. don't we, Liz? I mean, as I say, as I like to describe them, they are the bad boys of the church. Um, <laughs> they caused a riot. Uh, they're literally they're satirising the church. And also, it's worth mentioning, as we talked about courtly love, they're completely on the other spectrum of, you know, sex, drinking, gambling. Like, courtly love was all about sort of idolising from afar and, like, this pain and torture of love. And they're sort of very much, these goliards are much like sex now and emotional and youthful lust and, you know. I absolutely see that. I think the bit which I'm wondering about is that they're obviously being pretty riotous in a scandalous way. How much did people actually take them seriously as a movement for change in terms of the did it spark wider conversations? How much was it, guys, can you just sit down and stop being acting like spoiled brats, yeah. please? I mean, the the church definitely had some sort of scolding of them, mm. but I don't know how, in terms of their legacy, in terms of they completely changed everyone's view of um, the church. I don't think that's... I think it was mm. that thing of um, this is very much a phase you go through. You know when you go to university and you're like, this is me now and you're like, oh it is a phase though. You come out like, I look back at university and we're like, that was such a phase. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, you also hate anyone to tell us that that will happen. No, it's like it wasn't yeah. a phase. It wasn't a phase. And my mum came back and she was like, you've just looked exactly like every single university student I've ever seen. You shaved your hair and you started wearing Doc Martens. And I was like, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but basically, yeah, there was some retribution from the church. So in 1227, the Council of 
Trev forbade them from taking part in the chanting service in 1229. Goliards played part in disturbances at the University of Paris. And in 1289, uh, they were the subject of numerous church councils and they were, it was ordered that no um, clerks shall be jongleurs, goliards or buffoons. Perhaps buffoonery is a type of <laughs> poet. Buffoon! Um, <laughs> so often the privileges of the clergy were completely withdrawn from goliards. So they were like, no, you're not a member of the clergy now. So you had to be tried, I suppose, tried in secular courts as well and this kind of thing. So those kind of privileges as well. Yeah, they were probably being taken away from them. We are protesting because our cause is good. Yeah. And everyone else is sitting there going, guys. Mm. It's like those girls at school, you know? the people at school, you know, who go, you kind of all are in your English class and you've all agreed, like, I don't know, you're reading of mice and men and you've all agreed that the woman is bad. And you're kind of going, yes, we can do this. And then there's one person who's like, actually, um, and you're like, I know that you're only saying this to go against the status quo, but we all need to pass our bloody English exam. So if you could just stop diverting for two seconds. Um, yeah, I think I might give it a four. Okay. Because I think we've given them a lot of points for scandal. Yeah. And I'm not sure how much of the fact of rioting to change public perception actually happened. mm you know, so I'll give them the fact that they are absolutely trying to cause something, you know. They're definitely you know. trying to stir up something. Mm. But it's kind of, yeah, how much of it is, is sort of jumping on the bandwagon a tiny bit. And Yeah, exactly. And how much of it is actually, oh, your existence is annoying, but it isn't particularly controversial. Yeah, you just sort of go, okay, they're in the, they're in the, they're in the corner. I think I'm going to be slightly more generous. I'm going to give it a 5.5. Um, nice because i do think they're great so that is 9.5 for ripple or riot fab all right onwards to legacy how has this theater star influenced the future Leo. okay so now we can finally talk about um old fortuna <laughs> So in 1935-1936, 24 of the poems from of the Carmina Burana were set to music by the German musician Karl Orff. Orff's composition is super popular, um, and his Old Fortuna, which is the poem we read earlier, is huge. Um, I can't play the arrangement for rights reasons in this podcast, but I'm going to link it in the show notes, and you will definitely recognize it instantly it's in so 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 many movies and adverts and tv shows and video games so it was used in the 1981 film excalibur when king arthur and his knights ride into battle um which is a nice callback to the previous episode um in 1996 buster rhymes samples it um in the track in the end of the world in the outro it's used in the 2003 movie Chiba by the Dozen. Oh, which God, a, that's a throwback. I know, that. right? I love that film. It was. I just, I miss Steve Martin films like that when you just watch, you know, like Father of the Bride. I'm like, oh. And it's also used in Glee in 2009 <laughs> in a scene between Will Schuster and Sue Sylvester. So there's some of the variety of uses. I think like it's. I think everyone can think of one thing very quickly where they've heard yeah. it. I didn't, if you've if you've avoided this song, like, you're I, impressive. Yeah, I mean, I, you just have to hear the opening line, and then you're like, ah. Oh. And also, um, so Helen Waddell, 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 Waddell. I think she Helen wrote Waddell, a book called The Wandering Scholars, um, which was about the Goliards. Gustav Holst wrote The Wandering Scholar Op. Fifty as a chamber opera um, in one act. Um, and the libretto is based on the book by the Wandering Scholars. Yeah, I think she she was very much the person who 
uh, was the historian who basically brought this to attention because again no one knew about this tradition a lot of credit to Helen yeah. Waddell and she also that. I think wrote a, a book about um, Peter and Eloise why are you so determined to call him Peter? I don't know I just quite like that he's Peter because it's because she's Eloise and um Pierre on Eloise Pierre on Eloise it's Peter <laughs> it's a tough one this one I'm not gonna lie because Carmen Burana was kind of rediscovered in 1803 so not, not much. much and even really. the term Goliard itself kind of mingled out and became just a term for a minstrel i think it's also probably worth noting as well though that if we look at the medieval times in many quotation mm. marks um yeah there was so much going on you know bloody black death bloody wars bloody yeah, crusades we... like you know as we say stable stability breeds you really get an idea of this as we're going through actually like there's these golden moments and then it all kind of disappears and then like 100 years later something else pops up and then down and then or even 200 years it's uh i'm gonna give it a five because i think it's quite important and i do love i'll give it a four you're giving it a four okay so that takes us to a grand total of let me just do some maths um because i don't trust my own okay 41 out of 80. Wow. But I think it's the scandal that bops it up because yeah. it was scandalous. Yeah, that's really good. That's that's higher than most. But of higher than most, but not, not the highest we've had. No, I think we blew it out of the water last time. Yes. Boom. <laughs> I think I just relate to the reckless nature of um of Goliard. If they could have bleached their hair, they would yeah. have. I think that's probably the definition. Yeah. <laughs> if they could have smoked some weed and, you know... Yeah, and warn Doc Martens. And... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if, if they were me. So, uh, it has a pretty good score, but that is not no. all. Does it have a certain special something? Is it particularly distinct and particularly talented? Does it deserve to join the illustrious House of Revels to be performed forever in our great hall? It's really hard because I really like them, obviously, as we can tell, but I don't mm. think they do belong because... Um, no. I don't think they have that special something. But the thing is, is I think even though we're not including them, they'll somehow end up there anyway. I can see them just kicking the door down and being <laughs> like, here's a song about 10-hour lovemaking with Venus. Like, we'll be halfway through the night and we'll turn around and they'll just suddenly be there, you know? I just have this vision of, have you ever seen, like, um, annuals for something like the Beano or the Dandy? I just have a vision that when we finish this, we should we should draw our version of the yes. house of rebels and the people inside and i can just see the goliards outside like the bash street kids just kind of trying just to whack breaking down the, the windows and trying. being like trailing some herrings yeah eating some black pudding yeah with their donkey yeah i don't think that there's a particularly distinctive theatrical no. tradition I there think so. unless we wanted you know the donkey and the herring in there i don't think no <laughs> donkey and the herring i don't think so i mean I just really like no. them, as, as I keep saying repeatedly. Um, but they don't belong, I don't think. I, I get the feeling that inherently they want to be anti-establishment. It's that yeah. phase. That's literally, they would want to be in the House of They Rebels. don't want to be there. Yeah. So uh, the Goliards do not join the House of Revels. Nope. Uh, so that is it. We have just covered the Goliards. Well, perhaps not all of it, but as much as we can. 
If you enjoyed this episode, you can rate and review us and press subscribe to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. Have you got a nugget about Goliards that you'd like to share? We'd love to hear from you. Me especially, I would love to hear from you. Uh, you can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. We are House of Revels and on Instagram, we are House of Revels with underscores. Or be old school and drop us an email at houseofrebelspodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. This is the end. Bye bye.